This is Real Talk from Denver 7 and CPR News. Colorado has a rich history, but some say not enough is being done to protect it. We have expressed that this city is losing its soul to predatory development. The city of Denver is taking steps to protect the buildings, parks, and landmarks that showcase the city's vibrant story. I think it's much more empowering to make sure that we honor all of the heroes of our communities. Today, a real talk about historical designations and how they're helping us remember Denver's history. First, the news. Welcome to Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. I'm Colorado Public Radio's Nathan Heffel. And I'm Denver 7's Micah Smith. Each week in a partnership between Denver 7 and CPR, we're having a real talk about issues impacting underrepresented people across Colorado. This week, we're talking about historical designations in the state. And we start with the little state history. Colorado was admitted into the union by President Ulysses S. Grant in 1876 with years under its belt and hundreds more as a Native American territory, there's a lot of history to be preserved. And that's one reason why we have historical designations to protect monuments, parks, homes, and more from developmental changes in the Centennial State. The home of a prominent trial lawyer during the Civil Rights Movement may be the next Denver historic landmark. Denver 7's Colette Bordelon has more on the history of Irving P. Andrews and his home in Denver City Park West neighborhood near the intersection of York and 23rd, right across the street from City Park, is a home with history under its roof. This house really tells the entire story of Denver. Becca Deershaw is a senior city planner who has been researching this house. It was an area where black families couldn't live, where they were restricted from living. She says in the 1950s and 60s, black professionals started moving into the City Park West neighborhood. And they call this area Struggle Hill. The reason we're on this porch is the family who still lives here. Irving Andrews, despite being one of the best trial lawyers in Denver, in Colorado, uh, he couldn't have a law office downtown that was barred from him through the 1970s. And so he made his office here on the upper story um, and had the family home on the lower levels. I am the daughter of Irving Andrews, which may surprise some because he was born in 1925. Dr. Liz Andrews spoke with us from her home in Atlanta. He saw education as the way to freedom. Her father was a prominent civil rights lawyer in Denver who worked on the legal defense team that brought Brown v. Board of Education to the Supreme Court, a landmark case that ruled racial segregation of children in public schools was unconstitutional. It is a legacy that looms large. Her father is the man on the left of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in this picture from 1964. Sometimes we can think of history as full of these um, single charismatic leaders. I think it's much more empowering to make sure that we honor all of the heroes of our communities, especially at a time when histories are being erased actively. In Denver, almost 90% of our local landmarks are focused on the history of white men. It's been our goal over the last five or more years to make sure that we're telling the story of all Denverites in our historic designations. What was the primary emotion you felt learning all of its history? There's a little devastation and a lot of pride. Devastation about the city's history with segregation and pride about making sure people know the name Irving P. Andrews. It's a very powerful symbol, I think, for our family and hopefully for the general public. Colette Bordelon, Denver 7. 
I love everything about this story. I love the devastation and pride because it is devastating that our people were treated this way. And right. and, and we are not that far removed. Right. I have to say that we are not that far removed from this history, Nathan. Right. And, and that so few of these homes and places and businesses are being recognized and honored with landmark status. It is time. Yeah. And it's it overdue. Yes. <laughs> Irving P. Andrews' daughter, Leah Andrews, joins us. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, it's an honor to be here. Absolutely, well, your father was an icon in the civil rights movement, and he should be honored in the best way possible. Why do you think this is the way to do it? That is a great question. You know, as we just talked about, 87% of the landmark designations are mostly white men, which leaves 13% for people of color. And as my sister, Dr. Liz Andrews stated, these are histories that are actively being erased that we should embrace and hold on to because if we don't hold on to these legacies, we're going to lose them. Uh, I think it's more than just a space and place, it's a legacy and it's everything that he stood for, which is integration, social justice and community. And the fact that this home was home, it yes. was office because there was no place for your father to have an office. Yeah. And, and, and I think if you walk past that house, you're like, oh, this is just a house. But it's something so much more than that. And it has so much history there it, because of that. It's so much more. I actually live in the house in my dad's former law office. And I've actively just put up his placard that says Irving P. Andrews, attorney at law. And that's one of the ways that I hold on to his legacy and honor him. Because as you said, that house was purchased out of necessity for his home, but they also were not renting or leasing to black folk in the 1970s. Um, so when there's a will, there's a way. Uh, one of the favorite quotes from my dad is, I'm not a second class citizen and I won't be treated as one. Uh, but these were the ways we had to navigate the world and he still was able to make an impact in the city of Denver. Certainly, you know, uh, I, when I think about the civil rights movement, I always say the focus is on Martin Luther King, he, who was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. But we tend to focus on the achievement and not the real struggle. We seem to go kumbaya before we, we talk about why we had to sing We Shall Overcome. What are your thoughts on that? You know, this is amazing. One of the amazing things as a her story, and I've worked in education now for 15 years, is I've learned a lot about my own home and my neighborhood. It used to be called Struggle Hill for a reason. They weren't leasing and owning to black folk, and my dad made a pioneer move by purchasing the home and also practicing law out of that. I think that also brings it down to earth. You know, we think about Martin Luther King and we think about these large pioneers and these large figures when really the civil rights movement was people working together. And if people walk past this home and they see that your neighbor, the person living next to you can make change, we hope that sparks future generations to be like, I'm a regular person, he was a regular person, and yet you can make insurmountable change as a human. And, and going through this process, what has it been like? What are the steps? It seems like it's daunting, I think. <laughs> I know, huge shout out again to my older <laughs> sister, Dr. Liz Andrews. She started the process actually back in April of 2021. And okay. it just came out of curiosity. You know, we just started researching as we do. You know, we're the daughter of a, daughters of the civil rights attorney. So of course we're gonna do our research. And it just led through inquiry. And as we got into the steps, it was very intimidating. We were like, wow, this is a lot. Uh, but Historic Denver has been instrumental in doing a lot of the research. So when the historic designation came up, they actually hired a team of two people, many of which you're gonna to talk to today and throughout the process. And they were the ones who did a lot of the research, um, knowing about Struggle Hill and why they call it that. Uh, the criteria it takes to have a historic designation. It has to have a historical significance during his lifetime and also still be uh, intact. In it's a Queen Anne house, so it's still in its original form. Um, and I would like to thank my mom and family 
family for lending a hand in that. But it's been very interesting. We've gotten a lot more publicity than I think my mom <laughs> would like to have. Uh, but it's exciting. And as an educator, I can't wait to teach this history to our students, to the community, and bring it all the way to city council. Absolutely. I know you've received a lot of support, Leah. Have you received any pushback during this process? What's interesting enough, um, if people were around in that generation, uh, shout out to uh, Charlene Terry Nelson from the Blair Caldwell Library, where we have a display of Bob Rowan and my dad. He was a rebel rouser. He was not someone uh, that people wanted to uh, have have an issue with because he was such a big presence not only in the community but in the courtroom um, and so what I've found through this process is that my dad continues to have a legacy that holds up uh, people had a lot of respect for him he's well accomplished and it was all out of necessity we can say he worked with Thurgood Marshall we could say he worked on Brown versus Board but one of the reasons he did is that one of the nearest circuit courts was in Denver and as I said before he was not going to be a second-class citizen because he was uh, and I think that that speaks volumes to everyone who looks and thinks like us. Uh, we're all equal. And I think when we speak to uh, equality and integration, that was the goal that he had. And that is a goal that we still continue to strive for. With the process ongoing, what does it feel like if this passes and your father's house is going to remain on 23rd in York for decades and decades and decades to come? You know, I think the impact will be, again, far-reaching. I think about legacy. I think about all the values that I hold, which are community, family, education, social justice, and I want those to live past my existence. And I think with this landmark designation, it's living past my father's existence, but his legacy continues. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a you know a, a hill we must climb, but we are going to climb it together. And I think that again speaks volumes to it can be the person next door to you, but we have to do this together. Right. Well, so I'm hoping that's the lasting message is that that people can feel like they can make change too. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for your work, your family's work, to make sure that this stays in our community and that we can all learn about Irving P. Andrews. Thank you, Thank Leah. you so much. Thank Absolutely. you. Leah Andrews is the daughter of Irving P. Andrews. The Andrews family is working to make Irving's home a Denver historic landmark. We are just getting started with this real talk about historical designations. Remembering the history of Colorado is important, including those from our communities of color. Coming up, we're talking to an organization that's made it their mission to protect Coloradans of color's stories, and we'll hear how they're using historical designations to do it. This is Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. And I'm Micah Smith. Today, we're talking about historical designations in Colorado and how they keep the history of the Centennial State alive. Hispanic and Latino people make up just under 30% of Denver's population, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Black residents only make up 9%. Oftentimes, when we look at our history, our groups are underrepresented or even forgotten, despite playing such a major part in history. One organization in Denver is working to put that history at the forefront, and that includes highlighting places with historical significance. So we are joined now by Jamika Lewis of Denver's Blair Caldwell, Caldwell African American Research Library. Jamika, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about the roles people of color have played 
and making this city what it is today. Oh, you can't separate the history of Colorado and of Denver. I mean, you can't separate that history out if you do not include people of color. We all, for whether it's our Chinese immigrants, whether it's the Chicano movement, whether it's you know the civil rights movement you know, with black folks, we all have contributed to the history of this city. And you can't really tell that story unless you include these stories of people of color. And this is a research library, so you have uh, information and, and, and things that are just vital to, to history, right? So is that all that your, your research library is doing, or is there more that you're doing to preserve the history of, of Denver? Oh, we are doing a lot. <laughs> we are doing quite a bit. We, we really are out active in the communities, and we're trying to make sure that we're collecting these stories. Um, you know, with changes that are happening in the city and across the state, a lot of this history is being erased. So Blair Caldwell exists due to a history maker, to two history makers, you know, former Mayor Wellington Webb and Honorable Wilma Webb. And it's because of them, they have the foresight to say, we know that this city is changing and we need to do something. We need to have an institution that is dedicated to preserving the history and the cultural significance of black folks of the Rocky Mountain West. And so that's how our institution even came about. It was through to history makers, and it was through to additional black librarians who also were out and active in the community and were able to knock on doors, go in basements, go in attics to get all of this information and bring it over to our institution, knowing that we have professionals who are passionate and who are knowledgeable and who have the skills to not only tell these stories, but to preserve them and protect them and making sure that we're promoting accuracy. I love that idea of a librarian <laughs> going into a basement yes. and finding like, look at this. And the person's like, well, this is just my grandma. Yes, <laughs> some of the most significant things I found during my career as a librarian and as a historian has been in attics and basements. Oh, wow. And so once Blair Caldwell was founded and established, we know Gwendolyn Crenshaw and Terry Nelson wanted to make sure that they were out in these communities gathering this story, gathering these histories, bringing it back to us, bringing it back to professionals who had that passion and that knowledge and that interest. Mm -hmm. And you know, even though we reopened recently, we're continuing this work. Absolutely. I also love the fact that Blair Caldwell is located where it is, that was also very intentional. Can you tell our listeners and viewers where Blair Caldwell is located and why? Yes, so Blair Caldwell is located on the corner of 24th and Welton, which we lovingly refer to us as being the gateway to the historic cultural uh, district of Five Points. And so once you see Blair Caldwell, you are really seeing, you're starting down the Welton corridor, which was very significant as far as the accomplishments of, of black Denverites and black Coloradans. You know, Five Points was the only neighborhood where we could legally live. And when we tried to live and settle outside of Five Points, our homes were bombed. We were, you know, attacked by the Ku Klux Klan. And, you know, a lot of people don't know the significance of that. Five Points had to be a self-contained neighborhood. We had our own police department, our own fire, our own pediatricians, our own attorneys. All, all of those services, we had to be a self-contained community due to racism and white supremacy. Mm. I'm thinking about the historical designations that we're talking about today. The Rossonian is, is the place that you just drive. It is such a stunning landmark in the Five mm -hmm. Points neighborhood. Are there enough of these historic places in people of color communities that are being preserved? And if not, why not? Definitely not. Mm -hmm. So as I was preparing for this segment, I found out that there are over 300 historical designations for the city of Denver. But out of those 
maybe not even 10, are dedicated to homes and businesses and accomplishments of people of color. And it's, it's very interesting because we've had so many significant accomplishments of folks of color. So why aren't we preserving these homes? I why mean, Denver hides its hat on that. They're like, hangs their hat on there. Like, look at five do. points. Look they at all do. of this Absolutely. History. But why is a place like the Far East Center off of federal, why is that not a historic designation? Right. It absolutely should be. Why is Emmanuel High School, one of the most culturally diverse and one mm -hmm. of the oldest high schools in Denver, not a place that's a historic designation? It has to be. If we're going to really preserve this history, we need everything that comes with historic designation, including funding, including mm. acknowledgement, including that preservation piece. We want to make sure that these places stay intact so that we have a physical representation of this history, not just words that are in a book. You know, every episode I like to say, policymakers, are you listening? Are you listening? Jamika Lewis said funding, <laughs> funding is needed. Uh, you made several good points and you, you came up with some ideas for some more landmarks. So, Jamika, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank for this you. Real thank talk. you so much. I oh, appreciate it. We could just yeah, go on we and could, on. Kind we could. <laughs> We're keeping this real talk on historical designations going. The process of getting a landmark designated could seem very daunting and even scary to some people. Coming up, we're being joined by a representative of the city of Denver to explain the process and why it stands out from others in the country. back to Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. Today, we're having a Real Talk on historic designations in Colorado. The city of Denver is home to people of many cultures and backgrounds that really help add to not only our communities, but our vibrant history. And the city wants to make sure this history is remembered for generations. We are joined now by Kara Hahn with Denver's Community Planning and Development Department. Kara, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so we're gonna walk through the process yes. <laughs> of how you can declare something a historic designation or landmark. What does that process look like in Denver? Is it, is it different than other cities? The process is fairly similar to other cities, um, but in Denver, it's always a community-driven process. It comes forward from members of the community. Uh, they come to Landmark staff and we work with them uh, to complete a designation application it is then reviewed by Landmark staff, by the Landmark Preservation Commission, which is a group of volunteers who are appointed by the mayor, who are experts in architecture, history, contracting. They're experts in historic buildings. They review it to determine if the property meets the criteria for designation, which Denver has a very high threshold for designation. Our criteria are rather high. It then goes before Denver City Council, and they are the ultimate people who vote to determine if a property is designated or not. And for someone who is thinking of doing this, saying I have a place or I have a family home or something like that that wants to, that, that should be designated, what is the process? And, and, and it seems daunting, and it seems like that could maybe scare some people away. It is, and it's one of the things that we are considering. If someone wants to designate, they just basically email us. We talk to them, we set up a meeting, we say like, you know, here's the process, here's what it looks like, um, here's where we think that this could be designated for, 
they do the research and they come back. We recognize that that's um, a large process, so we are working on updating our designation application to make it a little simpler, um, make it, you know, reduce the barriers for designation to allow everyone to get their properties designated. Why is it important to do these? I know that um, you're walking folks through the process, you're definitely going through the administrative process of it all, but why is this important for our community? It's important to see the buildings that have been resided in, lived in, that it tells the story of Denver. Uh, a thriving city is one that has its historic buildings and its new building, it's the mix of both. It's understanding where we came from. And what do you look at when coming to that decision to say, you know, this is this is a historic place. You said the bar is very high mm -hmm. and there are a lot of places that have a lot of historic uh, uh, you know, parts to them, but only few actually have the designation. Right, so a property has to meet three out of 10 criteria, and then it has to look like what it used to look like. Would someone walking down the street recognize oh. it from that particular time period when it was significant? And so those are sort of the two different categories that a property has to meet. All right, well, Karen, now I wanna have a little fun. <laughs> what are some of the landmarks that stand out to you in our city where you're just like, wow, there's so much history there? Uh, I think one of my favorites is the First Unitarian Society of Denver on the corner of 14th and Lafayette. Uh, it is the first property in the state of Colorado recognized for its queer history. Uh, when I started in preservation um, 20 years ago, there were only two properties listed in the entire country for its LGBTQ plus history. Mm. And I decided if I wanted my story told, I was gonna have to help tell it. And so I was really excited when that came forward and I was able to help process that through. It was a really proud moment for me to be able to see that one go through. So that's my personal favorite. Would you mind sharing some of that yeah, history I, I, with us? Yeah, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, so uh, uh, the First Unitarian Society of Denver was one of the first welcoming and open spaces for queer folks in Denver. And so, so often they weren't allowed, we weren't allowed in spaces before. And so this was a space that allowed people to have events. They, the, um, the center on Colfax for a while was located um, in property owned by the First Unitarian Society of Denver. And they've gone on to do great other civil rights works, but it was really designated for that early 19 sort of 60s and 70s history of allowing LGBTQ folks a place to be safe. And, and is this, this is a landmark now, it's designated. It, mm -hmm. and, and is there like a plaque? Is there something there? Like when, when a place becomes a landmark, how do you know? There's a plaque that's put on there. It's a little round plaque. Um, it says Denver Landmark. Um, and it tells like the name of the building. And then there's also stuff on our website as well. All right. Now for those who listen or watch this episode of Real Talk and want to know, all right, how do I get in on this? I know a place, I know a person, I know a story. What do I do to even start the process? You would email us at Denver Landmark or Landmark at Denver. Uh, Landmark at DenverGov.org. Denver wow, you go. can Landmark at DenverGov.org. Correct. All right, we got it. Well, thank you so much, <laughs> Kara. So we much. really appreciate you for coming on for this Real Talk. Yes. And that's this week's episode of Real Talk with Denver 7 and CPR News. Every week, we'll be having a real talk on issues that impact Coloradans who are often overlooked. You can find all of our shows on denver7.com slash realtalk or at cpr.org slash realtalk. Have a great day.